Well, it's good to see everybody this morning. I uh, hope you all had a blessed Thanksgiving this past week, and uh, it was a great time for us to reflect on God's many blessings and His goodness to us. Uh, I certainly enjoyed it, and I hope you did as well. This morning, we're going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of John, the second half of John chapter 5. If you were with us last week, we saw the third of Jesus' signs, His powerful miracle of raising the invalid man, the man who hadn't uh, been able to move for 38 years, uh, sitting alongside the pool of Bethesda, and, and Jesus in his power as the Word, the eternal Word of God made flesh, raised this man up, and uh, this man picked up his mat, and, and he could walk again. And if you recall last week, we saw the subsequent controversy that was stirred up as a result of Jesus' miracle. The, the Jewish religious authorities were upset that Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath, that this man was, was working now by carrying his mat, and, and they were upset that Jesus himself was working on the Sabbath, performing these miracles. And, and today we're going to pick up in our series looking at Jesus' response to these Jewish religious authorities. It's a, it's a powerful passage. It's one of the most important passages in the whole Bible conveying to us the truth of, of who Jesus is as Lord without equal. I'm going to invite you to join me in a word of prayer, and let's ask God's blessings on our time of study in His Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the privilege we have of worshiping You this morning. We thank you once again for the privilege of coming to your word to learn from you, to be uh, enlightened by your truth, to be inspired to live more faithfully for you, Lord. We pray that you would open our eyes to the power of this passage this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate these truths for us and impress them upon our hearts. Give us a, a big vision for who our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ is. And may that vision compel us to want to honor him in every area of our lives as, as we lift him up as, as Lord, Lord above all, Lord without equal. And so we commit this time to you now, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my uh, favorite TV shows growing up as a kid in the 1980s was a classic sitcom, Who's the Boss? How many of you remember Who's the Boss? Tony Danza. And it, it was a great show. It was actually one of the, the top hits for eight years uh, during its uh, prime time time frame. And uh, the, the whole theme of this show revolved around uh, Tony Danza's character, whose, whose name was also Tony. He was a, uh, a widower and a former professional baseball player, he, he injured himself and was no longer able to play baseball, so he took a job in a very ritzy area of, of uh, Connecticut working for a family. Uh, he and his daughter went and, and moved in with this family. He was the live-in uh, housekeeper and nanny for a woman who was a divorcee. Uh, her name was Angela and her son Jonathan. And so, so Tony and his daughter Sam moved in with this family and, and the grandmother who lived with them. And the whole theme of the show revolved around this question, who, who's the boss here? Uh, and there was all kinds of funny hijinks that happened as, as uh, there was this role reversal, if you will, where, where the woman, Angela, was the one who was out working every day. She was the breadwinner for the family, and, and Tony Danza's character was the one who was at home taking care of the kids. And, and of course, you have the grandmother mixed in and the kids thinking they're in charge, and it was just a, it was a great show. 
and it was a great concept for an for a evening sitcom. Who's the boss? But, but more than being just a, a great show, that is a great question. Who's the boss? It, it's a great question that each of us needs to ponder in our own lives. Who's the boss? Who's running the show here? The passage that we find ourselves in today is a section of Scripture where Jesus himself forces us to wrestle with this very question. Jesus, as we're going to see, makes claims about himself. Claims that, that if true, ultimately necessitate his lordship, his reign over all areas of our lives. These are claims of tremendous consequence. Claims that we cannot take lightly. And each one of us, every single one of us, whether here in person or you watching at home, all of us need to wrestle with the claims of Jesus Christ. And we need to ask ourselves, who do we really believe Jesus to be? Who is Jesus to us? Is he Lord without equal or or is he something else? John Charles Ryle, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, calls this section of Jesus' teaching this morning one of the deepest things in the Bible. This is a profound passage that we're in this morning. And friends, while we won't have time to explore the full depths of this passage, my prayer for us today is that we will all come away with a more inspired vision of who Jesus is and all that this reality means for us in our relationship to him. And so today we pick up our series in John chapter 5, verses 17 through 47. I'm going to read our passage. You can follow along on the screens behind me or in your own Bible. Again, this passage picks up right after Jesus has miraculously healed this invalid. The Pharisees are upset with Jesus because he is working on the Sabbath. He is healing people on the Sabbath. We talked about that last week, what that all meant. And now in verse 17, Jesus begins by responding to these Jewish religious leaders who were upset at him. In verse 17, Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is an incredibly powerful passage. As as Ryle calls it, one of the deepest things in the whole Bible. This morning I want to look at four key truths that are conveyed for us here in this passage this morning. Truths that will help us understand more fully who Jesus is as Lord without equal. The the first truth we're going to explore this morning is the reality that there is no greater authority than Jesus. There's no greater authority than Jesus. At the outset of our passage this morning, we discover the root of the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish religious authorities. In verse 17 and 18, we discover Jesus' response to, to their condemnation against him that he was working on the Sabbath. Jesus, his response to this is, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why, John says, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath by working on the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, thereby making himself equal with God. Friends, what was the Jews' primary problem with Jesus? It it wasn't just that he was doing these miraculous works on the Sabbath. It was that in doing these works on the Sabbath, he was equating himself with God. 
He was calling himself the, the son of the father, thereby making himself equal with God. This, is, this was blasphemy in the eyes of the Jewish religious authorities. Jesus was equating himself with the father. I'm sure many of you have heard the, the famous phrase, like father, like son. That's something that I've heard many times over the years in, in my own life. Over the years, I've had many people tell me, Jason, you remind me so much of your father. This is a picture of my dad that you see on the screens behind me, and uh, the Lord took him home to heaven 10 years ago. But my dad was, uh, was a well-known Christian apologist. He traveled all over the world to 80 different countries and shared the gospel, wrote a best-selling book on apologetics, and, and uh, he was very well-known as a Christian speaker and evangelist. And, and over the years, as I've had the opportunity to serve and minister, uh, not only here at Lakes Free, but elsewhere, I've had many people who had heard my dad speak say to me, Jason, man, you, you remind me so much of your dad. I mean, you sound like your dad. You preach like your dad. You have the same mannerisms as your dad. I mean, you, you look like him. And I, I don't know, friends. I just don't see it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm really proud to, to have people tell me that, they re, that I remind them of my father. But, but here in our passage this morning, we need to understand, friends, that Jesus isn't just claiming a likeness to his father, but rather Jesus is claiming an essential unity with the heavenly father. Jesus is teaching us here in verses 17 through 24 what, what is known as, as the doctrine of the Trinity. This passage begins to bring into focus for us this, this classic doctrine, this orthodox truth of biblical Christianity, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, the triune nature of God, the reality that God is, is one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons. Now, now here in our passage, we, we only see the Father and the Son, the, the Holy Spirit is going to be brought to light more and more as we go through the Gospel of John. But Jesus is beginning to reveal to the Jews and, and to all of us that, that God is one, and yet he exists eternally as three persons. And here we begin to see the, the, the relationship in the Trinity between the Father and the Son. One God, but, but here, the Father and the Son, two distinct persons. And in five key statements here, in this opening section, verses 17 through 24, Jesus reveals that, that the Father and the Son, while distinct, are one in essence. They are equally God. And in this reality, Jesus, as God, as the Son, possesses all authority. Jesus possesses all authority. Look what Jesus teaches us here, these five key truths about the authority of the Son. And in verses 17 through 19, Jesus says that the Son acts in unison with the Father. In verse 20, Jesus says that the Son is united in love with the Father. In verse 20 through 21, Jesus says that the Son does the very works of the Father. In verse 22, Jesus tells us that, that the Son judges in the authority of the Father. And in verse 23, Jesus says that the Son is worthy of honor just as the Father is worthy of honor. Friends, Jesus is claiming here that He and the Father are one in essence. 
two distinct persons, but, but both equally God. And this is what the Jews were, were so upset with in Jesus as he continues to teach and as John in his gospel reveals more and more about what Jesus was claiming about himself, Jesus was claiming to be God. In fact, we're going to see later in the gospel in John 14, one of Jesus' followers, Philip, comes to Jesus and Philip comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, show us the Father. And in verse 9 of John 14, Jesus says to Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? See, Jesus is teaching us here that there are two distinct persons, the Father and the Son, but they are one, one in essence as God. And so we need to recognize, friends, to get Jesus wrong is to get God wrong. If you have the wrong Jesus, friends, you've got the wrong God. And there are many in our world today who claim to believe in Jesus, but they've got the wrong Jesus. Muslims, for example, claim to believe in Jesus, but, but the Jesus of Islam is just one of many great prophets. In Hinduism, Hindus claim to believe in Jesus, but if you ask a Hindu who is Jesus, they'll tell you he was just an enlightened guru who never suffered or died for anyone. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus, but, but they believe he was the first creation of God, the archangel Michael. The Mormons believe in Jesus, but they believe that Jesus was the physical Son of God, that Jesus was just a man of flesh and bone like you and I, and by following the teachings of God, evolved himself to become a God. The Jews, the Jews believe that Jesus was just a fraud, a false Messiah. Friends, understand this morning, anyone who says that Jesus is anything less than the eternal Word, the Word who created all things in the beginning. Anyone who says Jesus is anything less than the eternal Word is worshiping the wrong God. Now, friends, before we get too proud here this morning about all that we know about Jesus, right? Before we start patting ourselves on the back, no, we know who Jesus is. Yeah, Jesus is Lord. He's the one with all authority. Friends, Remember, knowing Jesus' authority and surrendering to his authority are two very different things. There are a lot of people in our world today, even many in our churches, who claim to believe in the authority of Jesus, and yet Jesus is certainly not the Lord over their lives. They're not letting Jesus run the show. They're running the show. Friends, the claim of Jesus here is that he is Lord without equal. And as such, he demands no less than to be Lord of our whole lives, every area. Are we willing to submit our lives to Jesus' authority, to his lordship? That's, that's what this passage forces us to wrestle with. Now, the second truth that we see here in our passage this morning in verses 25 through 29 is not only is, is Jesus the greatest authority, but we also see that there is no greater source of life than Jesus. There's no greater source of life than Jesus. After he declares who he is, Jesus next reveals what is his. 
What is Jesus's? Jesus says life and judgment are his. He is the possessor of life and judgment. And in verses 25 through 29, Jesus speaks about the two kinds of life that he gives. In verse 25, Jesus begins by revealing to us that he is the source of spiritual life. He is the source of spiritual life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus says that the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and live. Who are the dead that Jesus is talking about here? He's talking about the spiritually dead. Those who who haven't surrendered their hearts to him. Those who haven't confessed their sins and and turned to him in repentance and, and set him up in their hearts as Lord of their lives. Jesus is talking about the spiritually dead who, as he shared with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, have yet to be born again and experience the new life that only Jesus can give us. To to be born again, if you recall, is to be born from above, to to have the Holy Spirit of God come and do an internal work of transformation, cleansing you of your sin and and bringing you back into a right relationship with our God. That's what it is to experience spiritual life. And here Jesus reveals that it is He who is the source of this spiritual life. And why does Jesus have the power to grant this kind of life? Well, he tells us in verse 26. He says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Friends, Jesus has the power to grant new life because he is the very source of life. That's why he can give life to spiritually dead people because he is the source of life. It's like plugging into an electrical socket in your wall, right? The the electrical socket is a source of power that that is there. It has life within it. It it has power within it and you plug into that and, and it will sustain your electrical needs because it possesses the power. Now, there are other ways that you can get power in this world. There are other things that we can use to get power in this world. We can use battery packs, for example. We, we can use batteries. We can use, you know, your cell phone chargers. You have those portable charging blocks that you can carry around with you. And, and those things will work, won't they? They'll give you power. They'll, they'll give you a source of energy for a time. But what's the problem? They eventually begin to run dry, don't they? Whereas the power outlet, the power outlet, you plug into that and it is always there. It's always on. It's always flowing. It's always giving, giving power. Friends, it's the same way spiritually in this world. How often do we seek to plug into other sources of life that simply can't fulfill? Instead of going to to the one who is the possessor of all life, Jesus, we we turn to all of these other things in the world, temporary things. And, And friends, is it not true that some of these things will work? They'll work temporarily. They'll satisfy for a season the stuff of the world. But ultimately, it begins to run dry, doesn't it? And you need more. You need something else. You need something different. Jesus tells us, come to me. I am the source of life. I possess life inherently. I am the one who can fulfill and satisfy. 
Jesus goes on in verse 27. He says, not only is he the source of life, but he is also the judge and arbiter of those who do and do not have life. Those who do and do not have life. In verse 27, Jesus says, And he, the Father, has given him authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. Jesus' authority to judge stems from the reality that he is the Son of Man. Now, this is important for us to understand. Who is the Son of Man? The Son of Man is an Old Testament messianic figure that God had told the Jews to be ready for, to be prepared for, the Son of Man who was coming. And who was he? Well, the prophet Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision. And in his vision, he says, Behold, I saw one who came like the Son of Man. He came in human form, Daniel says. And he came to the Ancient of Days, the Heavenly Father, and was presented before him. And to him, this Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, the Son of Man's dominion, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, friends, the reason why Jesus has the authority to judge to judge between those who do have spiritual life and those who don't have spiritual life is because he has been given all dominion and authority by the Heavenly Father. Life comes from Jesus. And one day we will stand before Jesus and he will judge us on whether or not we possess the life that he offered us. Why does he have the right to judge? Because he is the Son of Man, the one who God has given all dominion and all authority. And as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 14, one day every knee is going to bow before Jesus. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is God. We will all give an account to Jesus because he is the judge. Jesus next goes on and he reveals to us that it's not only spiritual life that is found in him. New life, internal life, transformation life that's found in him. But he also tells us that the life he offers us is physical life. Resurrection life. Dead bodies rising from the grave kind of life. Jesus says in verse 28 and 29 that he is the source of resurrection life. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and those who, and those who have done good will rise to resurrection. Those who have done evil will rise to the resurrection of judgment. Resurrection of life, physical life, in the new heaven and the new earth with God or eternal death, separation from God. Verses 28 through 29, friends, tells us that Jesus is the one who is the source of resurrection life. Jesus is the one, friends, who who turned water into wine. Jesus is the one who who healed an official son from afar, from 20 miles away with, with a simple command, go. Jesus is the one who commanded a lame man of 38 years to stand and walk. And this one, this Jesus 
will one day command all in the grave to come out. All the graves will be opened and all the bodies will come back to life and they will stand before the Lord who is the judge and he will judge them based on whether they received the life that he offered them or whether they had rejected the life that only he can give. But we will all be resurrected one day. For those of us who know Jesus Christ, friends, this is a great hope. This is one of the greatest hopes of the Christian faith, the the promise of resurrection and his resurrection power. I've done many funerals over the years as a pastor. And I'll tell you something, you've probably seen it yourself, there's a profound difference, friends, between the funeral of a Christian, someone who dies in the the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and, and those who did not have that hope. There's a profound difference there. See, for the Christian, the grave is not the end. For the Christian, as the Apostle Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. For the Christian, we have the hope that one day our spirits will be reunited with our resurrected bodies and live for all of eternity in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is our great hope as followers of Jesus, resurrection hope. It's because Jesus promises his resurrection power to all who believe. Friends, let me encourage you this morning, don't forfeit. Don't forfeit the life that is found in Jesus. He is the source of of life. The third truth that we see in our passage this morning is there is no greater testimony, no greater testimony than that for Jesus Christ. In verses 30 through 40, Jesus goes on to share the evidence for his authority as Lord without equal. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to participate in jury duty. Now, if you've ever been called to jury duty, you know that this is often not an enjoyable experience. However, when I showed up for jury duty, I quickly discovered that the case that I had been assigned to was actually a grand jury. And it was a fascinating case. It was a wrongful death case, possibly a murder case. And over the course of a couple weeks, the the prosecutor came and and he presented witness after witness and, and point of evidence after point of evidence trying to convince us as the grand jury of his case against the accused. It was a fascinating experience. And just like that prosecutor built their case witness by witness, here in our passage, we, we find Jesus building his case, his case for his authority as Lord without equal. In verse 31 of our passage, Jesus begins this section by by saying, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now that's an interesting statement. What what, what does that mean? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, in the Old Testament law, God told the Israelites, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. This was the Old Testament law. You needed two or three witnesses. So Jesus here in verse 31, he's not saying that his testimony alone isn't valid. 
Of course, Jesus' testimony alone is valid. He is God in flesh. He, he speaks truth when he speaks. So he alone can speak truth. But Jesus here is simply making sure that the Jewish religious leaders have no excuse for rejecting his testimony. Jesus is essentially saying, look, at the Old Testament law requires two or three witnesses. Well, let me give you two or three witnesses. And he begins in verse 32 by declaring, there is another who bears witness about me. Who is this other that Jesus is speaking of that, that bears witness to him? Well, Jesus here is referring to the Heavenly Father. The Heavenly Father bears witness to Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals here that the greatest legal counsel of all was working on his behalf. You guys remember the, the famous dream team of O.J. Simpson, right? Robert Shapiro and Johnny Cochran. And I mean, he had this whole team of star lawyers working on his behalf. Friends, Jesus had a greater dream team than even O.J. Simpson. Jesus tells us here that he had God the Father as his advocate. And as his advocate, the Father is going to provide for us multiple witnesses. Witnesses who have spoken to the authority of Jesus Christ as Lord of all. The Father begins to make his case. And Jesus points out that, that the first witness the Father calls was John the Baptist. And Jesus, in verses 33 through 35, reminds the Jews that John the Baptist had testified about his authority as Lord of all, Lord without equal. And in verses 33 through 35, Jesus points out to the Jews, remember, you yourselves followed John. You sought John out for a time. For a season, you listened to John. Jesus reminds them that there was a time when, when they were even fascinated and curious by the teachings of John the Baptist. But, but what changed? What changed was when John pointed to Jesus as the Messiah the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And remember, the Jews, they, they weren't looking for a Messiah like Jesus. They were looking for a Messiah who would ride into Jerusalem like a conquering king, like a mighty general. And when John started pointing to Jesus, this, this humble carpenter from Nazareth, as, as the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, the Jews turned their backs on John. Jesus says to the Jews here in verses 33 through 35 that John was like a burning lamp, a burning lamp, testifying to the truth of, of who Jesus was. When John is called a lamp here by Jesus Christ, friends, I think this is an interesting description for us to consider and, and even to think about the implications of this for our own lives. See, see what does a lamp do? A, a lamp doesn't shine light. A lamp is just the vehicle, the bearer, the means to bring us the light. The, the lamp itself isn't the light. The, the, the light is just something that is conveyed through the lamp. And so J Jesus is saying that John was like a lamp. He was a vehicle shining the light of God's truth. And you know, when you think about John's witness to Jesus Christ, I think all of us can ask this very same question, am I allowing God's light to shine through me? Would, would God say of me that, that, Jason, you are a lamp shining brightly the light of the gospel? This is what God calls each of us to, and, and this is who Jesus says was his first witness, 
John the Baptist shining the light of the truth through his witness. Witness number two that is called by the Father here is, are the miracles of Jesus. In verses 36 through 38, Jesus says that, that the works I've performed testify about me. And you will even see greater works than these, Jesus declares. So far in John's gospel, we, we've seen three signs. We've seen Jesus turn the water into wine. We, we've seen Jesus heal the royal official's son. We, we've seen Jesus heal the invalid by the pool of Bethesda. And, and, and through these signs, remember, signs were miracles pointing to a greater truth. What is the ultimate truth that these signs conveyed? Jesus is saying, look at, look at the works I've performed. No one can do these things if they were not God. I do the works that the Father sent me to do, Jesus says. And you will see even greater things than these. Of course, the greatest of all of Jesus' miracles will ultimately be his own resurrection from the grave. The greatest miracle of all. The greatest proof of who he truly was. The third witness then that, that the Father calls is, is the Scriptures themselves. In verses 30, 39 through 40, Jesus says that you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus points them to the scriptures, and he tells the Jews, look at you have gotten so caught up in, in studying the word of God, thinking that it's the study and memorization of God's word that leads to life, that you've missed what the scriptures actually point to as the true source of life, me. The Son, the Word become flesh. The Scriptures point us to Jesus. I've had the opportunity to travel to Israel a couple times. The first trip I took to Israel was after my senior year in high school. My dad took me there as a, as a graduation present to, to show me the, all the sites in the Holy Land. We spent three weeks touring, touring throughout Israel. It was an incredible experience. On our flight home from Israel, we had a, a fascinating conversation with an elderly Jewish couple that was seated next to us on the airplane. They, they were devout Jews, and as we started talking about our trips to Israel, we explained that we were Christians, we were followers of Jesus, that we were there, you know, following the footsteps of Jesus throughout the New Testament. And they found it very interesting, and, and we had a great conversation. And my dad, during the course of this conversation, he asked this couple, he, he said, let me ask you something. Why is it that, that you Jews have such a hard time accepting Jesus as the Jewish Messiah? And, and this couple who we had been talking to for probably an hour at this point, they, they said to my dad, well, what do, what do you mean by that? And my dad explained, well, when you read the Scriptures... When you, when you read the Old Testament, I mean, Jesus is all over in the Old Testament. We find the Old Testament pointing us to Jesus all over the place. And they said, well, where is that? We, we've never seen Jesus in the Old Testament. And friends, it was fascinating. Over the next hour or two, we, we had this great conversation where we opened up the Scriptures with this couple sitting next to us, and, and we pointed out all of the ways that the Old Testament testified to Jesus as the Messiah. We talked about how, how Jesus was the promised seed of Genesis, how Jesus was the, the Lion of Judah, 
how, how Jesus was the, the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel, how, how Jesus was the suffering servant prophesied in the book of Isaiah, how Jesus was the, the Passover lamb found all the way back in, in Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac and God providing a lamb as a substitute to the Passover lamb given at the time of the Exodus from Moses leading the people out of Egypt. We, we talked about how when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, you see Jesus on the, on the staff of Moses, the bronze serpent lifted high, the source of salvation for the people of Israel, and on and on. And, and these elderly Jewish people, they were fascinated. Time after time, they, they kept saying, that's in our Bible? Wait, that's in our Bible? I mean, they were just fascinated seeing all of the ways that Jesus is found in the Scriptures. It was a great conversation. We, we gave them a copy of the New Testament as we left the plane and pray that the Lord worked in their hearts. But here Jesus says to these Jewish religious authorities, you search the scriptures looking for life, thinking that it's in the scriptures that you'll find life, but, but you've missed what the scriptures point to, to me, to Jesus. Friends, the case for Jesus has been made. The witnesses have testified. The, the case is compelling. But now each and every one of us must make a verdict. Every single one of us needs to make a decision. Who is Jesus Christ? Who do we say Jesus is? Is he Lord of all, Lord without equal? Or is he something else? See, we all have to make that verdict for ourselves. And this leads me to point number four this morning, truth number four in our passage. There is no greater mistake than to miss out on Jesus. No greater mistake than to miss out on Jesus. My sophomore year of high school, I played football for Eden Prairie. Eden Prairie, which just won their 12th state championship. I don't want to brag or anything, but my class was the first of our classes at Eden Prairie to win a conference title, and then the subsequent classes after us just went on to win state championships. Uh, but my sophomore year of high school, we were playing Richfield in the section championship. And it was... The, the final quarter of the game, our team was down by one point, and we had driven all the way down the field, but we were running out of time. There were, there were like three seconds left on the clock, and, and we didn't have any timeouts left, and our coach yelled to our offense on, on, off from the sideline. He said, down the ball, kill the ball, kill the ball, and so our team lined up, and, and I was playing flanker. I was a wide receiver and I was split out wide right, and, and I was thinking that our quarterback was just going to down the ball because the coach was telling us to down the ball so we could make a play and have one last shot at the end zone. But as the coach is yelling down the ball and our team is lining up and I'm on the, I'm on the line getting ready to, you know, to, for the play to be killed, I look and I see our quarterback, and our quarterback looks over at me, and he makes eye contact with me, like, like, I've never seen him make before, and I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, I mean, this guy's thinking something here. And we didn't have audibles or anything, but I mean, I had grown up playing with this guy, I'm thinking like backyard football, he's going to throw me a pass here. Now, of course, that's not what the coach was yelling from the sideline, but that's what I'm thinking in my head. And sure enough, he looks over at me, he hikes the ball, and instead of doing what you would think he would do, snapping it into the ground, he turns and throws a pass directly at me. 
Now, what am I going to do here in this situation, right? I'm thinking to myself, the coach is telling me to kill the play, but my quarterback's looking at me, making eye contact, throwing the ball right at me. Three seconds left in the game. We're on the 30-yard line. What do I do? Well, I catch the ball. And I run about two steps, and pretty soon the cornerback and the safety both wrap me up in the legs, and I'm down at the 28-yard line, and the game is over. And all my teammates are like, Jason, what are you doing? You're so stupid, you idiot. What are you, you ruined the game. You were supposed to kill the play. I'm like, the guy threw the ball to me. And to this day, I'm convinced he was throwing the ball to me. I mean, you know, he, but my teammates were so upset. I've reflected back on that moment many times. You know, I've made a lot of dumb mistakes in my life. And unfortunately, we don't always have the opportunity to go back and correct those errors. Sometimes we only get one shot. And friends, I want to tell you this morning, of all the errors we can make, of all the dumb mistakes, there's none more consequential than the mistake of missing out on what God has offered us in Jesus Christ. It's the most consequential of all. In verses 41 through 44, Jesus tells the Jewish religious authorities that they were missing out on, on the most important thing of all. They were missing out on recognizing Jesus as the Son of God. They, they were missing out on Jesus. Why were they missing out on Jesus? Jesus tells us in verse 44, he says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? What was their mistake? Their mistake is they were seeking glory from man. They were seeking glory from one another. They were, they were seeking praise for their own righteousness through their own works of, of good deeds and merit and study of Scripture and, and trying to show themselves righteous and faithful, all these external things they were doing. They were seeking to get glory from others, not glory from God. Friends, isn't it sad? How even today, so many people miss out on life in Jesus because they're more concerned about receiving glory from man than they are about living for the glory of our Heavenly Father. I've counseled many people over the years, even people in the church who are living their lives in rebellion against God's will. And, and I try to share with them, you know, this is the path that, that God has shown us, the path that leads to life, the, the path of righteousness, the path of holiness, the path of honoring God in our actions and our choices. And yet, sadly, so many people are more concerned about what the crowd thinks of them than what the Christ thinks of them. So many people want Jesus the life insurance policy, not Jesus, the Lord of our lives. Friends, it doesn't work that way. Jesus is Lord without equal. He's Lord above all. He demands our allegiance as his people. He deserves our allegiance over all that he's done for us. And here the Jews, like, like so many in our world still today, were missing out on Jesus because they were more concerned about the glory of man. Jesus concludes his teaching here in verses 45 through 47 
by declaring to the Jewish authorities that in refusing to believe in him, they stood accused. They were accused of the greatest crime of all. What was that crime? Failing to receive Jesus as Lord. Remember what Jesus said to the invalid man he healed last week. Jesus says, I see you are well. Now go and sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Remember we talked about what did that mean? What was that nothing worse? What, what was that go and sin no more? The, the sin that Jesus was warning that invalid man against was, was missing out on Jesus as the means of the miracle. And this is essentially the same thing that Jesus is saying to the religious leaders here. Don't miss out on me. Don't miss out on the means of the miracle. The, it's the greatest crime of all to, to miss what God has revealed to us here. And what was most damning for the Jews, according to Jesus, is that Jesus says their accuser would be Moses. The, the very person that they had set their hope on, the, the, the prophet of the Old Testament, the one who had revealed the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the one who had been the means of God conveying the law to Israel, they had put their hope in Moses, and yet Jesus says in verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would have believed me because he wrote about me. Jesus is saying to the Jews that, that the teachings of Moses were intended to be a sign pointing them to the coming Messiah, to Jesus. The scriptures were a sign pointing us to the Messiah, to Jesus. And friends, I want you to think about this. If the Jews were without excuse for missing out on Jesus in the writings of Moses, how much more are we without excuse? for missing out on Jesus when we have the full revelation of God's Word. We have no excuse. God's revealed truth. 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years. Three languages on three continents. Throughout these books, no errors, no contradictions between them. Scientifically accurate, historically accurate, geographically accurate, all conveying a common theme and message to us of God's love and his plan of salvation for men and women. Friends, God has revealed truth to us. Don't miss out on the truth that Jesus is Lord without equal, Lord above all. And as John told us early in our series, to miss out on Jesus is to stand condemned. John 3.18 says, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in Jesus is not condemned, but he who does not believe in the one and only Son of God is condemned already because they have not received Jesus as Lord. It would be like being diagnosed with a terminal condition and your doctor saying, but, but there's a cure, there's hope, there's a cure, and then turning down the cure that the doctor offers you. Friends, who's responsible for your ultimate demise in that situation? The doctor? The disease? Or you yourself for, for turning down the cure that was made available? In the same way, Jesus says, don't miss out. Don't miss out on the life that I offer. Don't miss out on Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for 
the words of your Son, our Savior and Lord, the truth that he conveys to us about who he is. Lord without equal, Lord of all, Lord of life, the Lord who is testified to by, by you, our Father, with, with witnesses, witnesses to the truth, the Lord who will one day stand as our judge. And Jesus, I pray that no one here this morning, no one watching at home this morning, would miss out on the hope that is found in you, the reality that you have come to show us life and life to the full, life now, life everlasting, life that's available when we turn to you and confess our sins and acknowledge our need for you and place you as Lord over our lives. You promise to lead us to life and life to the full. God, I pray that none of us would miss out on that great, that great gift, that none of us would miss out on Jesus. Thank you for this opportunity to study your word together, Lord. Help us honor you in all that we do as we seek to live for you, Lord, without equal. In your name, amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. It comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Have a blessed week, everybody. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage. And we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.